song is Storm Surge. It's from the band Rondo Hatton. Yeah, that's the name of the band. You can find it on their album Breaking the Sound Barrier. You can find Rondo Hatton, the band, at their website, rondohattonband.com, or look them up on Amazon or CD Baby. However you look them up, let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you because they gave us permission to use their music on the show Welcome to the podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I'm excited to have you back here because I've got some returning guests. Now, Paul McComas has been on the show in the past to talk about a few things. We've even had Greg Sterrett on the show to talk about Conrad Veidt films, but we've never had them on here together. As you may or may not know, they are the co-authors behind the novel Fit for a Frankenstein, which made the Monster Kid Radio Holiday Gift Guide not last year, but the year before. It's still a fun read. I've read it a couple of times since I put it on the gift guide. Highly recommend people check it out, and you're going to find out why when I have Paul and Greg on the show together for the first time to talk about the book and a few other things. That's what's happening in the bulk of this episode. After chatting with Paul and Greg, I'm also going to go over a little bit of feedback. We have a voicemail from a listener. Of course, that's happening at the end of the show. After the feedback, after Paul and Greg and talking about Fit for a Frankenstein, after all of this. There's an enemy spy at large, an invisible man. Amazing. You will be of great help to us. Who is this terrifying Phantom Commando? What is his amazing mission? See The Invisible Agent, suggested by H.G. Wells' Invisible Man, starring Ilona Massey and John Hall, with Peter Lorre, Sir Cedric Hardwick, J. Edward Bromberg, Albert Bosserman, in the most amazing story of our times. Now, let him get away. Who is there? How did you know I was going to England? I didn't, but so the trap was all set, eh? Frank, how can you talk like that? Oh, what's this? It's full of hooks. Oh, they're tearing into me. This is Ruby. And I'm Hater. And we host the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. A podcast based on Christopher R. Mim, a Minnesota filmmaker who's got eight films under his belt, soon to be nine. And they're all 1950s-style black-and-white movies. The podcast revolves around actors, the making of the films, and various other little fun bits. And technicians. (laughs) You can find us at SaintEuphoria.com. Or like us on Facebook. That would be the Mimiverse Bonfire Podcast. Hope you tune in. This is the voice of the uninvited. It's coming from the 
downstairs. It comes from everywhere and nowhere. A house of terror on the haunted cliffs of Cornwall, where the uninvited walk unseen by men. Yet a cat arches its back in fright. <coughs> Flowers are withered by the touch of an unseen malignant hand. Candles flicker and die as a ghostly chill fills the air, and the living are clutched by the icy horror of the restless dead. Stop, Pamela. Don't go near that door. The Uninvited, Dorothy McCardle's gripping novel of the supernatural comes to the screen, starring Rayma Land, Ruth Hussey, Donald Crisp, with Cornelia Otis Skinner, and introducing the exciting beauty of Gail Russell, whose first love is shadowed by the specters of the past. Stella, what is it? Are you ill, Stella? Quiet. Leave her alone. Oi, gone. Oi, gone. Stop her, Scott. Shh. She's in a trance. I saw this happen once before at a seance. I thought it was a fake. But this isn't... I know. It's dangerous. Please get out of this house now. Now lie there quietly. I'm not afraid of anything here. Then be afraid. Be afraid for heaven's sake. When you were a little child, the evils of this house reached out for you. Stella! Go! Go! to welcome back to the show a couple of guests that have been on the show in the past. If you want to know about Lon Chaney Jr., you got to have Paul McComas. If you want to know about Conrad Veidt, you got to have Greg Sterrett. This time around, though, we've got them both on the show, and we're going to talk about their novel, Fit for a Frankenstein. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Derek. Your support to both of us and our projects has meant the world to us, particularly since you won that award, man. <laughs> <laughs> the Rondo Hatton Award? Yes, that's, thank you. That's the coolest. That, what could be cooler than a Rondo Hatton Award? But Well, having my yeah. friends congratulate me is kind of nice. Well, thank you. <laughs> From your intro, I thought you were going to say, now we're going to do an episode about the fact that Lon Chaney Jr. and Conrad Veidt never did a movie together. That would be hard to fill that time, I think. Oh, wow, but, but that, that would have been super interesting, I think. That would have been a great film, yeah. I think man they have very different. They have very different acting styles. Well, this is true. The man who last meets Wolfman would have been great because Wolfman would have been really pissed off and like, well, "What's so funny? What's so <laughs> funny?" Did you realize this is a curse for life? And other guy's smiling, Gwynplaine smiling, and says, "Yes, I know. Isn't it terrible?" <laughs> so, somebody should write that. If we only we knew some writers. Well, it would sort of fall within our rubric, I think. Greg and I did make a film when we were 13 and 12 called The Invisible Man Meets the Wolfman. That's yes. Didn't we, Greg? Yeah. Yes, yeah. we did. Except we spelled invisible with an A to avoid, you know, I-N-V-I-S-A-B-L-E to avoid any uh, copyright issues. Oh, okay. Or possibly because <laughs> we weren't sure how to spell the word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that might have been it, too. <laughs> oh, so you guys have been <laughs> friends... I'm sorry, go yeah, ahead. Oh, forever, 40 years. It's a decent old film, and one thing we did is once he's invisible, I, is he plays Dr. What is it? Dr. Uh, Griffin. Griffin, thank you. And I play Talbot slash Wolfman. And once Griffin's invisible, 
and I'm supposed to be like throttling him with my sharp claws. I've got a, a tube of that fake blood in my palm and hidden. So I'm squeezing the air around a neck sized bit of air. And then you see blood dripping out. <laughs> what, what happened to the movie? Do you guys have it on DVD somewhere? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's the two of us and a guinea pig. <laughs> yeah. I was named Roddy after Roddy McDowell. We was playing a guinea pig. Really, we should have had it play a lab rat or a hamster so that we, it could have stretched its dramatic talent. But no, it's typecast. It's a guinea pig. <laughs> a laboratory guinea pig. Okay, we digress, and we haven't even started. You know, uh, you guys have been collaborators and friends for years, so I love hearing about these little projects that people have done <laughs> as they grew up as monster kids. So I'm, I'm just sitting here smiling, drinking my coffee. I, I'm trying to imagine this movie, you know? <laughs> Yeah, you can actually just uh, turn it on mute, and, and Greg and I will go for the next half hour. No, no, no. no, you ask good questions, and you're extremely insightful, and that's why you won the rondo. So oh, go, go ahead, ask away, ask away. <laughs> See, you guys have been friends for a long time. You guys came up together as Monster Kids. When I've had you on the show in the past, we talked about your background with your zines and yeah. that sort of thing. Yeah. Were the monsters what brought you two together? Oh, absolutely, I wanted to start a Lon Chaney Jr. fan club and monthly Lonnie Jr. magazine. So I put an ad in the classic Hyde, H-Y-D-E, ads in Famous Monsters number, what was it, Greg? 104, I believe. 104, that's right. I think um, so. And he was one of you know, 15 people across the country who answered it and became subscribers. It was a good deal, even for those days, a dollar for a membership card, Three issues, and I think there was a mini poster involved, too. Yes, there was a mini poster. wasn't the best uh, drawer, but I'll certainly say that my drawing got better, as my writing did. Well, and I would hope sort so. of my film scholarship over the course of 24 issues and growing up, you know, from uh, 12, 13, 14, 15, by the time we, we ended. Yeah, it's a great way to hone nascent skills in these areas is to commit yourself to doing a magazine every one to two months. And just a quick story is that in short order, my friend in Milwaukee, where I grew up, John Scott, came aboard with many faces of Price, Vincent Price, and uh, then pretty soon there was uh, Greg and his friend Scott with Conrad for Vite, and a fellow out in New York State named Jimmy Waters, who did one called Wolves and Werewolves. And then I started doing a second simultaneous magazine called Fright Monsters, which, uh, despite its name, also had quite a bit of sci-fi in it. And at one point, I, I melded it into Lonnie Jr.'s Fright Monsters when I realized that because of the movies I was making, I did not have time anymore to do two magazines. And I think those were all the macabre publications. Yeah, there were five titles all, all told. Yeah, those were the five. And uh, for a while there, you know, we each put five skulls next to the issue number on the front of our magazines. And then we banished Jimmy Waters over a tracing scandal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that stuff is hilarious. And I, my wife, Heather, and I were going to write a novella at some point called Wendy's, some like Wendy's Wheels Club versus Timmy the Tracer. And it's going to be about a girl who starts a bicycling club. But it's very autocratic about it. And the sign always says, like, bring swimsuits when we say, you know. <laughs> 
and then Timmy the Tracer's been banished from his monster kid club and tries to join the Wheels Club, and it's set in the summer of 1984. So I hope this comes to light. I think it would be a hoot. <laughs> we haven't heard from Jimmy Waters. Hey, Jimmy, if you're out there, do you remember what part of New York he was from, Greg? I don't remember, no. But we're in the book, so look us up. Yeah, look us up. Jimmy, you know, all, all, all is forgiven, and we know we overreacted. Tracing is really not like homicide. No. <laughs> Armed robbery, maybe, but not homicide. <laughs> it's forgivable. <laughs> all right. So Derek's not going to get a word in edgewise. No, he? this is great. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think the listen. I'm enjoying it. I hope the listeners are digging it too. So I think they're relating. I think, yeah. and, and that's the thing. This is a segue. I suppose. Boy, will they relate to Fit for a Frankenstein if they haven't read it yet? Huh? Is this like the perfect book for monster kids? I love Fit for a Frankenstein. I am a big fan of it. And the last time I Thank flipped you. through it, you know, I still feel like you guys nailed the voices of the characters. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing, especially with Igor. You cannot read Igor's dialogue without hearing Lugosi's voice in your head. And it was fun writing that way, too, because, I mean, we're basically, uh, yeah. we were writing dialogue for Bela Lugosi, if you think about that's it. Right. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was really awesome, and you had to get really get in that mindset and think that way, and uh, I think we did a pretty good job with it. Yeah, it was a ball. And like he says, I mean, Legosi's been dead for years. Who'd have think that you'd get to write lines for him? But because of the the nature and the premise of this uh, of this piece, we were able to do it here. And I'm open now to, to chapter 6, page 40. And so the fun of it is you get to write eager dialogue, not just for things that might actually have happened in one of those movies, mm-hmm. but for things that are just a little bit outside. You know, so you're hearing Igor outside his Universal Pictures comfort zone. And so... He comes in from his meeting with the tailor, who he's essentially commissioned to, to do a, what is it, size 60 triple X suit. <laughs> and the monster, whose own old clothes are falling apart and is now wearing just a burlap sack, is, is sitting there holding, cradling something in his arms in this barn surrounded by donkeys, cows, and other animals. And it's obviously this, like, pastiche on a, on a nativity scene from hell. Um, and the chapter is called The Way in a Manger. That Igor sees this, and then he smells what the monster's holding, like, like as if in swaddling clothes. What we have there is stinky infant. And then he sees that it's a block of Limburger. Baby Jesus, what you doing? And pushes him away. Why you do that, eh? Igor no take it. Just want to see. Is tender and mild now, but uh, is inside the stomach and heading south. Igor know all too well what that means. Soon, no more silent night. Then barn will be double smelly. And once that start, well, we all dead here. Which is, of course, this line from... <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. You think this funny, eh? How funny it's going to be when we found out by the farmer and his pitchfork, all because you shoot out the gas, gas of a hundred men, which, of course, you know, he would always say of strength of a hundred men. <laughs> yeah, gas of a hundred men. Yeah, we go a little scatological at times on this piece, but really every type of humor and some of the re- reviews, it's been amazing cite the fact that there's plays on words and puns 
character-based humor, scatology, references to to other movies, etc. And uh, yeah, we really mixed it up and thought, let's go for broke and uh, have no type of humor um, unutilized. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. All right, so... I think listeners might be able to figure it out at this point, but just in case, we did skip a little ahead here. Fit for a Frankenstein takes place basically in the universal canon, sort of. It's not yep. sanctioned, yep. but you know what? We're, we're fans, so what? And it takes place between Sun and Ghost? No, it takes place at about the eight-and-a-half-minute mark of Ghost, right? That's right, that's right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so Ghost starts, and uh, the villagers are going to destroy the castle, as they always try to do. And they succeed, but their efforts, ironically, free the monster from the uh, solid sulfur block that he was encased in as a result of the uh, climax of Son of Frankenstein, the prior film. So he's this sickly, ghastly, off-white, sulfur-covered from head to toe, and Igor gets him out of the castle and says, we go to uh, Vesaria, finds the second son, Ludwig, and uh, they're walking away, and then we dissolve, And as Lenny Cole of uh, Monster Bash pointed out, at the end of that dissolve, A, they're in Viseria, God knows how many miles away, kilometers away, Europe. Um, And B, (laughs) the monster is not sulfur encased. And C, he's not wearing the prior kind of work pants and a black tunic. He's in what appears to be a, a tailored black suit. I say it appears to be tailored because the guy is seven foot something. And you don't just find those. They didn't have, you know, big and tall men stores back then. Of course, they, the, the sleeves are still too short, as they always are on the, are on the monster, but we worked uh, that into fit. Then, obviously, there's this burning issue that has to be resolved is how did he get from there to this area, and how did he get that suit of clothes? And, and we were just the guys to, to answer that question yeah. because this it had to be answered. This wardrobe inconsistency from the fourth film in the Frankenstein series 70 years ago. I think it's right up there with the Middle East conflict, really. Yep. In terms of, you know, needs to be addressed. (laughs) Was this the first writing project you guys had taken on together? Yeah, basically. I mean, we we collaborated on some, uh, I mean, we, well, we wrote uh, The Invisible Man Meets the Wolfman together back in 74, (laughs) but... I think that was sort of just jotted down on the back of an envelope or something. Uh, yes, that. I kind of remember improvising it scene by scene, and it only lasted like seven and a half minutes. Yeah, so. it wasn't a real long film. Not a lot of dialogue either. <laughs> no. <laughs> but I think this was our first project since then. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, we did a short film. Well, I, see, I have this no-budget theater series. Derek, you're familiar with that right. um, for the listener. I made close to 50 short films from the ages of 11 to 17, almost all of them silent. A couple were Super 8 sound at the end, but uh, they were silent. They were standard 8. My dad got his Super 8 camera and gave me his standard 8, and then the world opened up, you know. But what I've done in the years since then is gone back and picked a bunch of these and uh, re-edited them, cannibalized footage from one to put into another, Taking out things like the, the two-minute continuous close-up of something that's blurred, you know, in order to make these films palatable, and then <laughs> added state-of-the-art sound. And No Budget Theater is a cross-generational collaboration between, say, 14-year-old me and 48-year-old me. 
And they've been very successful. They've become a cult favorite uh, on Evanston, Illinois' uh, cable access channel. And they've won a bunch of prizes at festivals, including one international festival, Blood of the Wolfman. I didn't get to go, but it was shown on the outside of uh, some Greek ruins on a Greek island at night. How cool is that? That's awesome. So I have a photo of me as the Wolfman projected onto on the outside of these ruins. So a recent episode called Gorzak's Grab Bag, Gorzak being a monster who hosts this episode of several more short films. One of the short films is called In Search of dot, 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 Worm Man. And in search of, of course, we're doing a, a pastiche of the old Leonard Nimoy shows from the late mm-hmm. 70s, uh, where he would talk about Amelia Earhart or the Loch Ness Monster or whatever. And Worm Man, why don't you explain that, Greg? Actually, where I'm at right now is up at a, a getaway place in a town called Hanover, Illinois, and uh, we have a three-acre pond on our property here. And when we were kids, it's kind of murky and we uh, kind of created this character, Worm Man, and anytime something would brush against you in the pond, a weed or a fish, oh, it was Worm Man, and uh, we used to scare each other with that. And uh, <laughs> So we had to have Leonard Nimoy go in search of him and uh, made a little film about it. I'd say that was a collaboration because they came up with the premise. Um, they supplied some of the origin story stuff and, and uh, you know location photography. Then we went up to the pond. Uh, Greg and Laurie and my wife Heather and I, and we shot a little film up there, which has great scenes like uh, Greg and his wife being interviewed as two eyewitnesses who have completely disparate stories, the one from the other. You know, uh, Greg says, uh, oh, he's about uh, about yay long and holds up his hands three feet apart, and then we cut to Laurie and she says, he's 15 feet if he's an inch, you know, and so on. <laughs> Um, and then my wife played the uh, Tammy Tart, the bathing beauty, who is uh, reading on the pier when I, as Worm Man, wearing a, uh, a hefty sack, emerge from the water just in front of her. You need to see this, Derek, I think. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So in search of Worm Man, and then Greg and Laurie worked with me on, on quite a few of the things in the the latter part of no-budget theater, the recent part of it. It's been real fun because a number of my friends from then, from uh, the, the 70s, I'm still in touch with, and so in many cases they got to supply their own voices and or appear in some new footage that we shot, all shot it on Super 8 using 1970s uh, FX and technology, you know, for consistency. But yeah, Greg and Laurie have been total MVPs with No Budget Theater and have worked with me on a bunch of episodes. So there was a lot of collaboration, but this was certainly the first time that he and I sat down and said, let's write a book. Whose idea was it first? I guess it was mine because I'd read Midnight Marquee Actor Series book, Lon Chaney Jr. from Luminary Press. And Lenny Cole's essay in there on The Ghost of Frankenstein points out, quote, Igor has managed to get the monster cleaned up and gotten him a new suit by the time the weird-looking pair enters Viseria, unquote. Now, we've become friends with Lenny, and he wrote us an amazing uh, six-page article in the current Monster Bash, 25. Yeah, I just got my copy uh, last week. Yeah, six pages, man. I, I, it, uh, were we yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. 
Uh, now, what he points out in there is, he says, good thing I didn't mention that Igor apparently has got his teeth fixed in between the two movies. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, why didn't you mention that? We could have totally worked in a dentist scene, you know? How fun would that have been? Maybe Gwynplaine's the dentist, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but... You know, we'll get to this by the end. We do have a couple more titles in mind. Well, when we're done talking about Fit, we'd love to, to give you a preview of those. Oh, I'm excited about that. I've, I've heard <laughs> off mic from both of you about some projects potentially coming up. But we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll call that a yeah. tease. We'll get there. Yeah. So, Paul, you come up with the idea for Fit. And was Greg your go-to guy on this? Or how did you guys decide to start working on this? No question. No question. Now, it, it could have been him or John Scott. John Scott... Uh, was my best friend growing up because we were, you know, both in Milwaukee. Greg and I had this unlikely friendship through Famous Monsters and Forey Ackerman, uh, which was one of the reasons it took dedicated to Forey, along with Lon Jr., Bella, and Boris. Because I placed that class of Hyde ad, you know, even though we live two and a half, three hours apart, something like that. Right. With me in Milwaukee and he down in Munster, how perfect, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> Still, we were able to become good friends. We were pen pals. We talked on the phone. Um, we would uh, visit from time to time. I visited him for several days around his, what, 12th birthday? Yep. Yeah. In 74? Yes. December 74. And then when I was in college up in Appleton, Wisconsin, he came up for a long weekend, and, and we had a blast. And, you know, Greg, someday we should write a short story at least about the Cosmo Cafe. Yes. Uh, Kind of Twilight Zone story, right? And originally, this was going to be a short story in re-releasing one of Paul's books, mm -hmm. and it yeah. just took on a life of its own, and that's yeah. it ended up being its own book. I had written Unforgettable, my 500-page, 50-story compendium of all the best genre work I'd written up to date, mm -hmm. sci-fi and horror and dark humor. And John Scott had written on his own a long story, almost a novelette, in that book, so... Uh, kind of a check mark, and also I dedicated the book to him. So it's like, well, geez, Greg and I never got around to doing a piece for Unforgettable. When it comes out, because it was doing very well critically, and it won a couple of prizes, one regional and one national, it's like, we've got to do a reissue of this, and it would be a time to add some more material. And I approached Greg, and the idea was we're going to write this short story to fill in the gap um, and put it into a new, new edition of Unforgettable. But as he says... It took on a man-made life of its own, and uh, next thing we knew, this was no story, and certainly no short story. It was turning into a novelette or even a short novella. Um, but again, you can't explain such a significant uh, anomaly um, in, in just a few pages. You really have to, to develop that narrative to, to make sense of how the wardrobe malfunctioned very different from Janet Jackson's wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> I was getting a mental image. I don't know if I need this early in the morning, but, yeah. It's a wardrobe function. There, there we go. <laughs> it's not male. It's, no, that's it true. Actually functioned. That's true. A reparation. Um, because, but there are, within the uh, narrative, a couple of wardrobe malfunctions for the monster where suddenly, you know, the, the old worn-out suit comes up or off or the, the burlap bag has been removed and uh, uh, we get, ah. Uh, Igor really not need to see that. Yeah. <laughs> the spoiler alert, uh, when he shows up nude for the tailor and the tailor's gorgeous, smart, young daughter, Gretel, she suddenly realizes 
that her boyfriend may be a little bit lacking. And not that she wants the monster, but it's like, you know, that France that I've been saying, eh, maybe I can do better uh, <laughs> when she's got sees what the monster um, is packing. <laughs> <laughs> to, to put it delicately, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we do it in, a, I think, a very... Uh, sensitive way we don't describe anatomy we say a new oblong shadow spans the adjacent wall yeah you can leave it up to the imagination yeah yeah (laughs) Chuck Turner always liked to show things in shadows if if one must go there yes (laughs) if one must and apparently one must uh, because one of us did yes So how how did this come about? How did you handle the co-writing process? You know, Paul's kind of got the ball rolling and uh, <laughs> wrote a chunk and said, here. And then I took over and uh, and we would, you know, kind of go over each other's stuff and add to it and subtract from it. And uh, yep. much like the monster was created, that's basically how we worked. It was all through uh, email and stuff back and forth and talking on the telephone. We didn't actually you know, get together in person and sit down and write together. Oh, sure. But uh, it really flowed. And he he might suggest, hey, you know, maybe, maybe in the next chapter you could write this and or, or vice versa. Yeah. And uh, it was a real collaborative effort to just sort of evolve like that. Did you say vice versa? I did. Yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was ping, we call it ping pong. I've probably written almost two dozen stories with other people with maybe 18 other people, because in some cases you come back, like Greg and I will be, because uh, it's just working so well. And I I was not very good at this 15 or more years ago, but as you co- become more secure as a writer or as an artist, I think you get really better at collaborating because you're not so, uh, oh, well, this is mine, and uh, well, it's got to be this way. I mean, that's the way I was when we were kids with Macabre Publications, and I had, you know, that, that's why we banished Jimmy. I I was just really possessive of the fact that he was doing a werewolf magazine and I was doing a Lon Chaney magazine and that was too close, you know, and I think I was probably looking for a pretext to get him out of there. Well, once you get published a few times, you have a few books out there, they're getting decent reviews, you win a prize or two, it's like, hey, this is fun and I don't have to be so fascistic about things. And uh, I compare co-writing to writing in terms of writing is work. And co-writing is play. It's me and Greg showing up uh, at the sandbox, and I'm like, look, I brought this action figure. And he said, cool, I brought this spaceship. And then we just start to tell a story, uh, basically. Not that it, there weren't parts of it that were work, but it was really fun work and, frankly, easier than doing it on your own because you've got something to respond to every single time. So I wrote the first scene literally during a, a raging thunderstorm in the middle of July 2011. How perfect is that? Yeah, yeah it was perfect. And then I, I talked there over to Greg, and he came up with... I started them on the road to the town of Kutstadt, where the where the, most of the action takes place. And then he had them on the next day after the storm has passed, you know, obtaining some food. Basically, the monster goes in and grabs some wild geese out of the pound and snaps their necks, and pretty soon a campfire is going. But it's established in that scene, actually something I added at the end of that scene, that the monster's not happy with the geese and the fish that float up dead to the surface of the pond because he's walking around with all this sulfur on him and it kills them. He wants something else. 
And uh, later in the book, that turns out to be the stinky cheese. Uh, and he's, <laughs> he's just crazy for it, just like that dog in the Wallace and Gromit uh, movies. He loves his cheese. So, yeah, I, it's interesting because he would, Greg would see something in what I wrote and kind of, okay, I can use that in the next part. And I'd see something what he wrote and like, oh, I know where to go with that. It's not like we sat down and outlined the whole thing. My approach to writing has never been about pre-planning and outlining because I think that reduces your characters into two-dimensional cardboard cutouts and you're just sort of setting them through predetermined paces. I always tell my writing students, let, let the characters help you and guide you. And I really do, do feel like the characters, and in particular Igor and the tailor, who are probably the two most prominent characters, I think they really, we did let them kind of guide us. In the case of Igor, that's easy because we know that character so well from the two movies. In the case of Klaus Hauptschmidt, we had to create him first, and then he uh, really kind of took on a life of his own. I was going to say, Igor does have the benefit of having been seen in these previous films, and as Monster Kids, we've, we can quote those movies right now. I mean, it's <laughs> we know Igor, but the tailor, Klaus, you had to invent him out of whole cloth, and you made him feel just as real in Fit for Frankenstein as Igor or the monster. Now, if I remember right, Paul, when I had you on the show the first time we talked about this, you told me kind of where the inspiration from this character came from. True, and you can see it in our author's note at the end, too. We initially were going to go with George Zuko, Akim Tamara, Peter Dory, some character actor. Um, Lionel Atwill would have been appropriate because, of course, he was in everything. But he already appears in Ghost of Frankenstein as Dr. Bomer, and we couldn't really have him appear in a, a sequence of Ghost of Frankenstein, which really is what this is, as another character. And suddenly I thought, you know, as a Frasier fan of long-standing, Niles Crane. <laughs> you know, Frasier's even more effete, even more uptight younger brother. Wow, who could possibly be more flummoxed uh, by Igor and more different from him than Niles? So we patterned Klaus, and the name came from uh, Greg Klaus Hauptschmidt. Maybe there's an origin for Hauptschmidt, I don't know. But uh, there was for the uh, the cheese shop, I know. There are a lot of inside jokes in there, um, not just for our friends and people who know us, but also for fans of the Frankenstein series, Abbott and Costello fans, Fraser fans. There's one Planet of the Apes joke for no real reason. And Klaus, he is if, if Niles had been born in uh, uh, early 20th century Bavaria, this would be he. Is there an origin for the Hauptschmidt name, Greg? There's a couple of German families uh, around here in Hanover, Illinois. We used some of their names, and Hauptschmidt was, uh, there was the Bickel Haupts and the Schmitz, and so I made Hauptschmidt out of it, basically. And what about uh, yes, uh, the and tea Walter's shop? Tea Shop, a good Walter's. friend of ours, uh, had passed away while we were writing the book, Bill Walters, and uh, he it's a great German name, and so yeah. I just wanted to uh, kind of honor him by uh, naming the cheese store after him. So, And Igor says it's Volters, and then that leads to a little joke about they don't want this guy showing up while they're raiding the place, the monster for cheese and Igor for Deutschmarks. And so Igor, like, hisses to the monster that they, uh, they need to get out of there. Voltage may be good for you, but Volter no good for Igor, you know. Uh, <laughs> once you incorporate something, you, it starts opening up. And this is why I say don't plan stuff, you know. We throw Volter in there, and suddenly there's a pun. 
And it happens all the time when you just open yourself up to the process. Well, I put it on the holiday gift guide, not this year, but or not this past year, but the year before that, because I I loved it when I read it, and I thought it was a real kick. I mean, as Monster Kids, as fans of these movies. I want to hang out with Igor some more. I want to hang out with Universal's monster more. And, yeah. you know, they're not making those movies anymore. So what do you That's have right. to do? You got to read this book, which is the next best thing. And I love that it still has legs and it still has life. That Monster Bash just did this huge six-page piece on it. Yeah. And that seemed to come out of the blue. Did you guys know what was happening? I we did, knew a review uh, was coming out, but uh, I, right. we, when I opened it up and saw that the six-page uh, article, I was floored. I mean, I had no right. idea they were doing that. We've been used to three paragraphs, uh, one column of one page. But, wow. Yeah, we got to know Lenny Cole. He actually came to one of our readings where we did this scene uh, where uh, Igor first walks into Hauptschmidt Taylor's and negotiates this suit without, of course, telling him who or what it's for. Mm-hmm. And you get to see Igor is totally fine throughout the scene. He's He's Igor. Nothing ruffles him, really, mm-hmm. except when he hurts the monster's feelings, and then he has to, no, no, Igor, Igor, sorry, Igor, not mean to, you know. But Klaus is just don't know what to make of this this creature. So, yeah, Greg and I performed that uh, at uh, the Tuesday Funk series at Hopleaf Restaurant and Bar in Chicago, and Lenny was our guest of honor. It was wonderful to be able to thank him from the stage, and he was beaming throughout the whole thing. Oh, nice. So we knew he was going to do a review for Monster Bash, but we didn't know it was going to be a six-page article with gorgeous photos, including our author's photo with Greg and me as respectively Igor and the monster. It was a great boost, you know, all of a sudden it sort of seemed like, okay, you know, kind of went where it was going to go, and then all of a sudden this happened, so that was uh, it was a nice little yeah. boost. I came out just in time for the Monster Bash convention, and Ron Adams told us that he was going to kind of uh, release it there, and uh, uh, I got to think that a lot of people found it there and hopefully bought it there. <laughs> That's not the end of the conversation. We're going to come back with more of Paul and Greg talking about Fit for a Frankenstein, being a monster kid, being creative people, and just doing what they do in part two of our conversation, which will be coming out in episode 222 in two days on Thursday of this week. That'll be coming out on July 30th, so you're going to have to come back for that And, of course, it goes without saying thank you to Paul and Greg for taking the time to record with us here on Monster Kid Radio. I can't wait to share the rest of the conversation with everybody here on the show. If you want to get your hands on Fit for a Frankenstein between now and then, it is in the Monster Kid Radio shop over at Amazon. Go to monsterkidradio.net and just click on the link for Fit for a Frankenstein in this episode's show notes. It'll take you straight to the Amazon page where you can buy it, support them, And we get a penny or two off of that because it's through our affiliate store. And that Monster Bash magazine that Paul and Greg mentioned, well, you can get that directly from the folks at Monster Bash. Go to creepyclassics.com. You can pick up back issues of the magazine, DVDs, CDs. And this is where Ron Adams and company announce the latest news for upcoming Monster Bash conventions. Who knows? Maybe Paul and Greg will be able to perform part of Fit for a Frankenstein at a future Monster Bash. After you read the book, let Ron know that's what you want. Beyond any terror ever known, the black sleep, it wakes the dead. Five of the screen's greatest horror thrill stars, Basil Rathbone, Akim Tamirov, Lon Chaney, John Carradine, Bella Lugosi, and these beautiful women in their power. 
pass through a madman's hellfire. Enter an ancient abbey's secret passage into the most terrifying tortured dungeon from the medieval past. Shocking victims of a famous brain specialist gone berserk. Plunging you into a reign of terror. That's cerebral fluid. But that means this man is alive. Yes, alive. This is criminal. Monstrous. Mungo! Why not use her? Put her under black sleep. Take her up to surgery at once. A horror beyond belief. Feeding on beauty. Lusting to claw the world apart. We have a voicemail from a listener, and if you pay attention at the end of the episode, you'll hear the phone number that you can use to call in yourself. Heads up. There are some spoilers about Beneath the Planet of the Apes in this voicemail. So if you're worried about spoilers, well, we've warned you. Hello, Derek Joe Iden here, just commenting on your two Beneath the Planet of the Apes podcast. That film has been uh, my favorite of of all of the five original eight films. I always thought it was the most dark. It's the most tragic and for me, when I think of my first impression of that film is I really like James Francis in it, but we follow him through this whole ordeal. And it takes a very dark turn, as you mentioned, you two guys mentioned, and then to see him get blown away and killed like that at the end, you know? And I'm so glad you enjoyed it because it, it has always been my favorite of the films. And that's not an easy thing to say because the first one is so is so good. And I love James Gregory as Ursus. You know, and I'm really glad that you're sitting watching these without looking at the documentaries and stuff like that. Now, I know I have the Blu-ray like you, and I know that that documentary on the Blu-ray is, is, is very good. But I think I mentioned this in a previous email, in a previous call. Uh, there is a documentary that came out around the, I don't know, 30th or 40th anniversary. It's called Behind the Planet of the Apes, hosted by Roddy McDowell. You could almost do a podcast on that as well. Included in, you know, with your Planet of the Apes, uh, as you go down the films, you could almost do one on that. Because that is one of, if you like film, and if you like the genre stuff that we like, that is a fascinating documentary. And they take that to every single phase, all the way up to the TV show, the cartoon, everything. So, um, I really enjoyed the last two podcasts. I'm looking forward to the other ones, especially the, the Planet of the Apes one. I'm looking forward to getting your impression of them because you never had never seen them. And the Planet franchise is probably my favorite, second only to maybe Star Wars. But uh, I'm so glad you're enjoying it, and it's such, a, it's such a blast listening to someone who hasn't seen them, and especially someone who has an eye for this stuff, this genre stuff that we like. You know, so I'm thoroughly enjoying listening to you talk about Planet of the Apes. So I say that, enjoying the podcast. Keep up the great work. I will keep listening, and uh, take care. Bye. Joe. Beneath the Planet of the Apes was an amazing film. Blew my mind. That's no exaggeration. It really impressed the hell out of me. I loved that film so much. I am actually going to try to make some time to watch it again this upcoming weekend because I just, I loved it. And I'm with you. I think I actually liked it a little bit better than the first film. 
mostly because it's so different. It took so many more chances than the first film. Now, I love the first film. Don't get me wrong. If I had to rank them like on a scale of one to five, Beneath would be five. Planet would be like 4.75. You know, it'd be like right there. So good. And I can't wait to get into the rest of the Planet of the Apes films. That documentary that you mentioned, you mentioned it before, and I assumed it was on my Blu-ray set. I'm looking at it, though, and I don't know if it is. So if it's not, I'm going to track that documentary down as well. I want to know more about Planet of the Apes, but I don't want to skip ahead. It's not fair to Scott. It's not fair to you guys and gals. So, yeah, stay tuned. We'll do some more Planet of the Apes here later this year. Killer fish. From a robbery that's incredible to a rendezvous that's undetectable to a recovery that's impossible. On an island paradise. They search for treasure. They search for pleasure. And they search for flesh. In the most terrifying adventure to ever drag you in, pull you under, and tear you to pieces. Killer fish. Danger below. Disaster above. And death-defying survival every second. Killer fish. Lee Majors, Karen Black, Margot Hemingway, Marissa Berenson, and James Franciscus. Killer fish. Terror will tear you to pieces. And that brings us to the end of the show. But before we wrap up, I want to let everybody know you can find us over at monsterkidradio.net. This is our website. This is where you're going to find everything you need to know about Monster Kid Radio. Between episodes, we have links to everything that we've got going on here at the show at Monster Kid Radio headquarters. You can subscribe to the Monster Alley Checkpoint e-newsletter and get yourself a monthly email from me letting you know about everything going on with Monster Kid Radio and Monster Rally Media. There's bonus content in here, articles about the Creature from the Black Lagoon film, monster movie trivia. Now, that normally goes out at the end of the month. But if you support Monster Kid Radio through Patreon and become a patron of Monster Kid Radio at the Toho level or higher, well, you get the newsletter a little early. Speaking of Patreon, there's a link to our Patreon page where you can support the show and get yourself some sweet rewards along the way. We also have links on our website to every single band and song that's appeared here on the show. So that's there for you, as well as our contact information. Our email address is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. There's also a link to our Facebook group where you can get involved with conversations with Monster Kid Radio listeners between or even during an episode, depending on when you're listening. And we've had quite a few people join the group lately. Welcome to the club. 
Thank you for listening, everybody. Thanks for everybody's support, for sharing, for retweeting, for linking to reviewing Monster Kid Radio on iTunes, and for liking the Facebook page. We are just over 600 likes right now. Joe DeMiro, the filmmaker, the director behind the movie Tales of Dracula, has challenged his friends on Facebook to help get Monster Kid Radio to over 1,000 likes by the end of August. Can we do it? Well, with your help? Maybe. Either way, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Storm Surge. That belongs to the band Rondo Hatton. You can find them online at rondohattonband.com or look them up on Amazon or CD Baby and buy the album Breaking the Sound Barrier. It's a pretty fun album, as are the other albums in their discography. So go check them out. Talk to everybody in a couple of days. (laughs) 